Okay, uh, good evening everybody um, and welcome to this uh, public lecture in the British Government at LSC public lecture series. Um, my name is Johnson Hopkin, I'm a senior lecturer in comparative politics uh, in the government department here. Um, it's a great pleasure to introduce uh, Polly Toynbee and David Walker, who are going to talk about their uh, new book, The Verdict. Here, just a brief introduction. Um, Polly Toynbee has been a columnist for The Guardian since uh, 1989. Is that right? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Wikipedia. Having previously worked for the BBC, The Independent, and The Observer, she's the author of nine books, again, according to Wikipedia. You can set me straight if that's not true. And, um, and not out of Wikipedia, this is my opinion, she's probably the most consistently influential voice for social democracy in this country of the last quarter of a century. Uh, anyone wants to argue that out with me, um, I'll be available afterwards. Um, David Walker is the editor of Public, uh, a Guardian Monthly for Public Sector Executives, has also worked for The Independent as chief leader writer for The Economist and for The Times. And together, they've published uh, four books over the uh, period um, spanning um, the Blair and uh, Brown governments, 1997 to 2010. Um, the first was uh, an audit of Labour's first term, Did Things Get Better, um, published shortly before the 2001 election. A second volume called Better or Worse, Has Labour Delivered, was published shortly before the 2005 election. Uh, in in uh, the final term in 2008, they published a book on inequality in Britain called Unjust Rewards. And now this year, uh, they've published The Verdict, uh, which is an overall assessment of the achievements and failures of the um, Labour governments over 97 to, to this uh, year. Um, and uh, it's uh, both an impressive piece of uh, political and policy analysis, but also an excellent piece of journalism, because it manages to uh, talk about the complex policy issues, drawing in part on social scientific research and on their own uh, research, but also um, taking individual cases of ind individuals, families, companies, uh, organizations, and weaving some of these uh, more personal stories into a broader political picture. Um, so, um, this evening, uh, Polly and David are going to talk about the findings and conclusions of this book. Uh, there will be a question-answer session after they've uh, finished their, their initial presentation. And after we've finished, uh, there will also be a book signing um, just uh, out there. You'll have seen the books uh, lined up um, as, as you came in. Um, there will also be a podcast made, made available of this uh, lecture in a few days' time. So. Um, that's uh, my introduction. I will now hand over to Polly and David, um, and I'm looking forward to hearing what they have to say. Thank you very much indeed. Um, probably by now, you've all uh, read quite a lot of other books. You might have read Mandelson, or Blair, Blunkett, and you probably have to brace yourself for an awful lot more Brown is coming along, uh, an awful lot more self-justifications from former ministers. Um, but we aren't offering you personalities. Uh, we're not offering you the psychodrama of the great Blair-Brown rift. Um, we're offering, offering you, we hope, uh, the facts of what actually happened. Not ideology either. This isn't primarily a story about what Labour came to believe or its view of the world. You might say you can't separate action from its ideological groundings and convict us of 
uh, callow empiricism, but we felt at this stage in the recapitulation of the Labour government it useful to describe and analyse what it did, especially as viewed, uh, John said, by people, as it were, on the ground. But we did find the book very hard to write for a lot of reasons, um, because Labour never really had a consistent story, and it was a zigzag government. It was triangulating, uh, deliberately ducking and weaving and avoiding definition. Um, but we just did feel it was very important to capture what was actually done, what was achieved, where the spending went, and also to capture and to recollect uh, some of their programmes, which were often never really registered with the public, uh, unknown to any but those who used them or those who worked in them, uh, very soon to be forgotten, as so many of them are now being axed, and I find I'm having to tell people what they are before I tell them that they've just gone. The Connections Youth Service, um, much of further education, which in lots of ways was greatly improved, teen pregnancy prevention schemes that were really rather successful, Every Child a Reader, uh, a programme for making sure that every child was picked up at the age of, of six, that had just got off the ground, Future Jobs Fund, that uh, you know, had a lot of promise in it, uh, picking up, giving a, a guarantee to all young people that they would have a job. The aspiration, the aspiration was uh, a balanced scorecard. Now, you might say it, these are incommensurables, foreign, domestic, and so on. However, trying to make uh, a judgment in the round, because we live in a demotic age when it could well be that if the government's higher education reforms go through, you will be required, those of you who are students, to give uh, a verdict on your uh, professors and lecturers. Uh, I thought we'd ask you uh, to begin with if you wouldn't mind indicating if you had to rate the Labour government 1997 to 2010 on a scale of 1 to 10, what you might choose. I wonder if I could ask first of all those who might say Labour wouldn't be worth anything above 3 out of 10. All right. The other end of the scale, anyone says Labour's worth more than seven out of ten? It's about equal, isn't it? Okay, five out of ten. Okay. Well, for what it's worth, we're going to walk you for a few minutes our pluses and minuses, uh, and then see how that coheres with your uh, your your views. I'd start with Iraq. Um, I think the Labour's tenure in power was indelibly marked by the invasion and its dreadful aftermath. Um, I think more than that, Labour, uh, Iraq destroyed uh, Labour's reputation and, and broke its spirit. On equality, great expert here, um, many would say that that's the touchstone of any, of any progressive centre-left government. And um, here we are at the LSE where much of the relevant analysis has been done. Um, the scorecard says that um, Britain became slightly less fair under Labour, even if 600,000 children were lifted out of, of poverty. Uh, its attempts at redistribution were always like running up a, a down escalator and not quite making it. But counterbalancing in another neck of the woods, Labour repatriated the European Convention on Human Rights, enacting the Human Rights Act 1998. It willed and accomplished the movement of power from Westminster, it feels like permanently, to Edinburgh, Cardiff and, pending some final settlement in Northern Ireland, progress towards which was made under Labour to Belfast as well. 
taken together, Labour's first time re-engineering of the Constitution was comparable in its scope, according to Professor Peter Hennessy, to the settlement of England's 17th century strife in the years after 1688. But he added, you could never quite weave what Labour did into a convincing tale. It remained a patchwork. Labour's liberalism uh, did embrace the Freedom of Information Act, uh, the enactment of civil partnerships. That was certainly something that was never in the 1997 Manifesto. Data Protection Act, one of Labour's very last acts, the Equalities Act, which is a peculiar, a peculiar creature, but it is beginning to hold this government to account and to at least make them have to be transparent about uh, the extent to which their uh, current uh, programs and policies uh, actually further the cause of equality or inequality. But pulling down the liberal uh, side of the scales, Labour was accused of constructing uh, a network of CCTVs, a DNA database, it attempted electronically to register identity, it gave the security services money and passed, for example, the Regulation of Interception of Communication Act. It wanted to extend detention without charge to 90 days. It expanded the prison population to a level proportionately higher than Burma's country in the news this week. And if, like Jack Straw, you dispute Burmese official statistics, you can't deny the absolute increase in the inmate population under Labour, in England and Wales at least, of some 32,500 in the decade after 1997, that's to 2008, an expanded penal estate in what many felt like a more penal state. On the other hand, I think to some extent Labour was a party of freedom and light in that it did abolish entry charges for national museums and galleries, saw a huge increase in numbers of people, and particularly numbers of children attending them, and it greatly expanded arts funding. It really was a golden age for the arts, 70% increase in spending. Uh, public spaces uh, created and restored transforming the physical centres of some of our great cities. I think we look at Manchester, Birmingham, Gateshead, uh, there really is a sense of restored former glories in many of those cities uh, and a, a sense of, of renewed optimism, uh, often using the arts to help that, that regeneration. I think the NHS was a good story too. Uh, under Labour, mortality from disease fell by a third. Uh, and survival rates for cancer and heart disease rose markedly, though you can't necessarily say it's straightforwardly connected just to Labour's policies. I think it was a great comfort to patients, even if it doesn't particularly help survival, that um, waiting, lists, waiting times declined to such an extent that in most places they're effectively zero. They're about to start rising very sharply around the country any time now, and it'll be interesting to see because people often didn't register uh, how much difference Labour had made when they see it going into reverse, uh, how shocked they may, be, may become. I think one of the most puzzling things about this coalition government has been the way it's decided to cut the legs off NICE, the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence, which was one of the best things that Labour brought in, a rational form of, of rationing for the NHS for the first time, transparent, evidence-based tests for drugs and treatments uh, with the idea that this should be spread fairly without a postcode lottery across the country as a, a sort of menu for what the, what, uh, the NHS should, should uh, provide, much to the anguish of, of Big Pharma, 
who didn't like it and seem to have had their way in that um, the Tories are now dismantling uh, that and uh, I think the pharmaceutical industry has a lot to, uh, is, is, is the explanation for that change of policy. A hallmark of Labour was inconsistency. Take drugs, flip-flop, declassifying, then reclassifying cannabis without the evidence having definitively changed. And the sacking of Professor David Nutt and the Drugs Advisory Body showed how inconvenient ministers came to find such evidence as there was. A Labour gap. Uh, after 1998, no defence review, yet a decision in principle made in 2006 to upgrade Vanguard submarines carrying Trident. The present government can't fairly be blamed for decisions as painful as the closure of RAF Kinloss or lack of harriers for aircraft carriers that Labour itself had funked. Labour left vital business unfinished. The opposition this week rightly claims, that's to say Labour rightly claims this week, that the Tories are stacking their majority in the House of Lords. But why did Labour leave the crenellated towers of Parliament in such a state, as if they'd built the scaffolding halfway up and then gone off to the cafe for a cup of tea and never come back? For example, in the House of Lords, there remains an inbuilt majority, including Anglican bishops. We are legislated for by people who sit by dint of their membership of uh, a church, the Church of England, the average attendance in whose buildings each Sunday is of the order of 3% of the population of England, and 92 hereditary zombies. That's to say, aristocratic remains, people who again legislate on our behalf simply because of the blood that courses in their veins, who, when one of their number dies, vote to replenish their ranks by consulting the pages of Burke's Peerage. On the economy, uh, Labour bet the bank on the banks and the financial services condoning and even really encouraging the further decline of manufacturing. The very idea of picking winners was absolute uh, anathema, uh, at least until very late in the day when Peter Mandelson rediscovered a sort of weak form of industrial policy, but only really in the last months. Uh, it was extraordinary that Labour allowed the house, price, uh, house prices to bubble to the extent they did uh, and stood amazed when Kate Barker told them that despite this extraordinary increase in, in prices and amazing market failure, very few extra houses were being built in the private sector, let alone in the uh, social housing sector. And it did bequeath huge problems in terms both of, both of migration and the pressures that it built up on the immigration question and in terms of housing benefit and the rising housing benefit bill, which of course mirrors the rising cost of property. Uh, I think tax policy was very confused right from the start, partly because Labour was absolutely wedded to its pledge on never raising income tax. Abolition of the top of, of, the, of the bottom 10p tax rate was an interesting case because it shocked the very Middle England that was supposed to be bribed by getting extra money at the expense of the lowest paid. Uh, it showed that Labour was actually out of touch with what people's real sense about fairness is on tax, and income tax usually scores rather high on fairness in, 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 in opinion polls. When Labour cut capital gains tax to 10% uh, and wrung its hands over the burden of inheritance tax, it was very hard to see any logic or any, or any policy behind any of its fiscal thinking beyond a sort of desperate attempt to placate the uh, leader writers of the, of, of the right-wing newspapers and bankers.
Yeah, it's on the plus side. The overseas aid budget had doubled uh, by 2005. That year, the Glen Eagle Summit saw the otherwise dysfunctional duo of Gordon Brown and Tony Blair standing side by side to make development in sub-Saharan Africa a genuine priority, so much so that the present government has felt obliged to carry Labour's development policies pretty much up to this point forward intact. Labour's policies lifted a million uh, old-age pensioners out of poverty, guaranteeing a minimum uh, income for them from rising from £69 a week in 1997 to £130 this year. There had always been a, ba a boast that there was a cradle-to-grave welfare state in this country ever since the last war, but in fact the cradle was never there. One of the best things Labour did, uh, using evidence-rich policy, was to create that cradle for the under-fives, uh, creating 3,500 Sure Start children's centres, expansion of nursery places to all three- and four-year-olds, tax credits, support for parents. Not enough, still not enough places, but a huge improvement on what went before. Yet, an opportunity to address a fundamental, a UK fundamental, was lost behind the migration boom, a failure to raise the quality of the UK workforce. The LSE's own Richard Layard called the lack of policy for skills Labour's greatest failure. But on the other hand, we do give education, uh, we do give them great credit for their education policy. There's no doubt that education improved immensely. Spending on primary school pupils rose by a third in real terms, and measurement uh, and attainment uh, rose accordingly uh, for children aged 11 able to reach the correct standard for, for reading and, and writing and maths. In secondary schools, also a story of improvement, proportion of children getting five good GCSEs, including English and maths, rose from 45% to 67%, quite a steep increase. In 1997, half of all secondary schools uh, were deemed below standard by Ofsted, and now that's only a tenth. And what's more, what was average then as a standard has now become the back marker. Higher education expanded hugely, carrying on from the Conservatives' uh, first initiative on that, point where 46% of the age group uh, post 18 year olds now go, to, go on to universities. You wouldn't sit outside in Lincoln's in fields on a night like this, but thanks to Labour you might on a summer's evening sit outside and cradle a drink uh, until late in the night. The 2003 Licensing Act aspired to create a cafe culture liberalising drinking hours. However, Committee of MPs by partisan just before the last election found that relaxation had not diminished law and order problems associated with alcohol overconsumption, simply moved them uh, hours later into the night. Labour overreached. Uh, its lack of project management was demonstrated, I'll just mention, the Millennium Dome. Labour did some things that sat very oddly with its own values. I'd put faith schools in that category. What on earth were they doing increasing the number of faith schools in a, a country that is the most secular in Europe? Uh, what was it doing uh, allowing gambling ads for the first time on television? What was it doing initiating super casinos? And although the row centred on the one big one, that was going to go to Manchester, which with a great flourish, Brown announced when he became Prime Minister, he would do away with. Nothing more was said about the 16 others, bigger than any in existence at the moment, under construction, even as we speak. Again, like in health, there's no cause, no straightforward causality between policy and criminal justice uh, and crime. Nonetheless, there is some relationship. 
and the British Crime Survey recorded a fall of a third in violent crime in the years to 2008, in which year the likelihood of becoming a victim of crime was lower than at any time since that most reputable of evidence bases the British Crime Survey had begun in 1983. On climate change, Labour was very good at grandstanding on the world stage, did a lot of that, but very little was actually accomplished. Good laws were passed, good intentions made, promising a 20% cut in carbon emissions by this year, by 2010, on the 1990 base, uh, but possibly only 5% was actually achieved, and most of that was due to the recession and to the dash for gas that was really underway before Labour came to power. Uh, green tax revenues fell as a proportion of overall taxes. But again, plus side Labour created a quangle which the present government hasn't dared to abolish, that's to say the Food Standards Agency, and it opened 3,200 square miles of the uplands of England to hikers, enacting uh, a long uh, promise uh, of progressives to a right to roam. On the plus side, we'd also say the New Deals, which came in with a flourish when Labour first came to power and did a lot to get long-term, particularly long-term uh, unemployed youth back to work. Uh, also, the minimum wage, not high enough, not a living wage, but still made a great difference to uh, many, many people's lives, particularly low-paid women. But shortly after Labour came to power in 1997, John Prescott, then Deputy Prime Minister, had promised to get people out of their cars and on buses and trains. Since he said that, British motorists have driven 67 billion extra vehicle kilometres. Uh, what about the failure to reform party funding? I think that's something that Labour's going to come to, to regret deeply over the next few years. Or boardroom pay, nothing done on that. Not only nothing done, but nothing said. No rebuke, no word. Always going to the city, to the mansion house, uh, full of, of praise, calling it the golden era for them. The pay of uh, FTSE chief executives rose uh, 5% between 2008 and 2010. Uh, actually, it's just written by 55% in the last year. Uh, at the same time as earnings per share in their companies actually fell by 1%. We could cite the UK's medals tally at the Beijing Olympics, 47 medals, which put the UK fourth in the global medals table, if not causally, then pretty directly related to prior sports investment enacted by Labour. But how to match another high ranking by the UK in a global table, fourth if not third, among world exporters of arms and military materiel? What price the promised ethical foreign policy? So you see it's very difficult to align the achievements with the disappointments. It's a constant comparison between apples and pears and people will <clears throat> weigh it up according to how much they care about any particular issue. Uh, we've been trying to audit, as, as you said, we've been trying to audit Labour's progress right from the start. In our first book, Did Things Get Better, published in 2001. We were anxious still to be persuaded by Blair's promises that, like Mrs Thatcher, uh, the government's intentions would really roll out in the second term. He told, us, he told us that in interviews with him. He said, you know, if you look at Mrs Thatcher, she didn't really get into her stride, discover Thatcherism until then, just you wait. Um, looking back over the 13 years now, uh, we actually find that most of the radical and lasting changes that Labour made happened or started there back in that first term. Evolution, minimum wage, new deal, windfall taxes, 
uh, childcare tax credits, Human Rights Act, most of the best things actually were in the first term and it was a decline thereafter. Our second book, um, Better or Worse, Did Labour Deliver, was published in 2005, and it registered mindless repetition of promises to reform the public sector, provoking now, it seems, entirely irrelevant Labour rows over foundation hospitals and trust schools and, of course, foreign wars. Even then, we were asking why this continuing reliance on the intellectual capital of the 1990s, so little refreshment of ideas, even as the world of the 21st century changed around the government. The verdict now is uh, our account, the first draft uh, of what Labour did manage to accomplish. But we hope it's more than that, because I think to some extent it's also a generic story about governments and government itself. A lot of Labour's failures... Uh, characterise all governments, uh, already apparent, I think, in this one and some of the mistakes it's making. The pretensions of ministers when they arrive in their departments, so far away from the coalface, so far away from the things they're trying to influence, whether it's within families or whether it's within markets, um, how little they understand what's really going on or what effect or uh, unintended consequences their actions often have. They pull on the levers and they often find that nothing very much happens at all. The processes are so complex. By the time anything does happen, they will have moved on to another department anyway in the endless, uh, destructive, uh, rapid movement of ministers through departments. But I think the greatest political problem of all, which again faces all governments, is all of us, all of you, uh, we the public, contrary in attitude, perhaps often infantile, perhaps encouraged to be so by impossible, an impossible media, uh, wanting hopelessly contradictory things. We hope the book will be a basis for uh, today's arguments, principally about the deficit and the accusation that Labour spent excessively, leaving behind a gaping debt. Inevitably, as we examine health, education, law and order, social benefits, uh, that charge is in the back of our minds. But is it fair? Yes and no is the answer. Spending was starting to run ahead of receipts even before the recession and the bailout that, of course, pushed the deficit up. It wasn't that Labour, having masochistically, as it were, worn too tight a corset for the first two years, then tore off the garment with burlesque abandon. As the brakes came off spending, the government failed to make a political case for matching it with extra tax receipts. Labour leaders, as Polly said, colluded with a public wish for Scandinavian spending and transatlantic tax rates, because that's what the polls kept saying, you, we, the British public, wanted. Labour should have confronted us, them, with the gap and didn't. In writing the book, we uh, wanted to offer the new Labour leadership a basis for recapitulating, for recalibrating, for learning from some of the experiences of Labour in power. And when we started writing it, it did seem that Labour had nudged the political centre of gravity in a somewhat social democratic direction on public services, on income distribution, even on poverty. We were looking at how Cameron and the Tories um, had appeared to get the message and felt they had to use that language of fairness uh, to detoxify their old image, and that seemed to be progress. But now as they slash and burn, uh, you have to wonder and you have to consider that the replacement of a Labour cabinet by a cabinet of old Etonians, 18 of them multi-millionaires, says an awful lot about what didn't happen on Labour's watch. 
that no plates shifted in Britain's social geology. Labour recognised the symptoms, but uh, St George with a penknife, um, it didn't make very much uh, dent on the monster's scales. Did Labour change Britain? The verdict, our verdict, was not enough. Uh, we gave them six. Okay, thank you very much. We've got a good bit of time for questions. Um, we're going to take them in groups of three, and um, it's beyond me to find any, uh, to perceive any ranking or order here. It'll be fairly random, so I'll um, invite questions. Um, George, Morris, and anyone else in this area? Okay, and somebody at the back, yeah. Go ahead. George Jones, LSE, Government Department, X. Uh, David, I didn't hear local government mentioned, and I wondered where you rated the Labour government's uh, record in dealing with local government. It looks to some of us it was uh, carrying on intensifying the Thatcher Major approach of con more and more controls, legislation, uh, regulation, guidance, which has eroded local government and has seriously weakened local political life in this country. Thank you. Maurice Fraser, uh, LSE European Institute. Um, uh, I was rather surprised by the rather uh, cavalier way that you uh, skated over the grotesque levels of debt that we've been bequeathed. Um, uh, even uh, as late as last February, the government was handing out public sector contracts literally on the, on the never-never. Um, uh, you skated over the suborning of the civil service, the endless briefings and smears and backbiting and just that corrosion of public life. And I think that that's a serious indictment of the last government. But the real crime, to my mind, uh, was the complete funking of public service reform. Um, and the casualties of that weren't the middle classes. They, they can take themselves off, or the better off can take themselves off into private health or education. The casualties were the people at the bottom of the pile. So uh, what I want to put to you ask you is why by every international indicator, WHO indicators of our health, rank, of our, our health ranking, uh, educational performance, you mentioned education, but in the OECD rankings we have declined, infrastructure quality, and chronic welfare dependency and a, an underclass which had given up all hope. Um, that seems to me a pretty bad record. And Tony Blair knew what had to be done. He knew that reform was needed, but he wasn't prepared to take on Brown. He wasn't prepared to take on the left of his own party, and he wasn't prepared to take on the unions. And that was his unfinished business, which he, which he ruse. And now Labour seems to be retreating into its sort of left-wing comfort zone, blaming new Labour for losing sight of Labour's core values. I put it to you that the problem was that old Labour never died. It was very happy with the old system. Um, it was happy to preside over an inefficient and unaccountable and very bloated state. Um, and uh, as I say, it was, do you not think that it was actually game, set and match to old Labour, which to me seems, you know, a bit of something of a thought-free zone. Uh, you mentioned yourself, ideas after the first term ran out altogether. No ideas at all. Thank you. And final question at the back there. Um, Linda, Linda Corsha. Um, 
I'm amazed that you got through all that without any reference to the reason that um, for a lot of people they, they did not want them in government, which was the sneaky underhand immigration policy. Um, and, and in terms of, of Labour changing Britain, surely that's pretty high on the list. And then the over, you seem to have also missed the overall liberalising agenda. Um, and I remind you that Peter Mandelson was the, uh, the Trade Commissioner for a lot of that time. So the, the privatisation and liberalisation of public services, by liberalisation I mean uh, contracts and sell-offs open to um, transnational companies. Uh, similarly, the private sector, an emphasis on liberalising there, so that now we have a situation where the Indian company Tata is the biggest owner of manufacturing in this uh, country. Uh, no referendum on the EU, uh, going ahead with the Lisbon Treaty without asking the British public at all. On the bank, on, on the issue of okay, the bank, um, last we, thing, last thing, um, issue of the bailout of the banks as okay, one Labour backbench. We can't backbench, really have a list. I'm going to have to cut you it's off. It's the last there's, one. There's, as there's, one uh, Labour backbencher said, Gordon Brown did what he did to save capitalism. Okay. Um, Holly and David? You start with local government. Well, I mean, just, just on that, I mean, you know, we only had a limited amount of time. There are chapters in the book on migration. There are chapters on the book on Europe. There are chapters on the book, in the book on economic policy. And all of the issues you mentioned are, in fact, dealt. So it's not just a question of our ignoring them. They're there. We haven't had the chance. And it would be interesting to pursue each one in detail. But it would take a lot of time. Polly may pick up a couple. Just let me, if I may, uh, address George's point. He's absolutely right. If you drew a curve in terms of central local relations, it wouldn't look as if there are many blips between the 90s uh, and the noughties. Uh, that said, I think it's worth registering that there was, not just when David Miliband was, uh, as it were, the minister responsible for communities, a rhetoric, which we've certainly heard echo echoes of in the present government, about community empowerment which George and I might agree is rather subversive of the idea of multi-purpose elected local government, but does constitute a form of localism uh, in some people's eyes. And the other point I make is, again, even if we're agreeing that Labour did, through its regime of targets, uh, crimp the autonomy of local elected bodies, it did provide them the wherewithal to do things which they hadn't been doing. Polly made the point in our presentation. If you go to the cities of England, and it's probably applicable in many ways here in London with its different government setup, you can see visually some uh, enfranchisement of local identity in the spaces which were refurbished thanks to money put in the way of uh, elected local government. Many of whom in Manchester, as a good example, did spend extremely wisely and interestingly, which is why visiting Manchester is now, for many people, a pleasure, which it wasn't uh, before. Um, Polly can perhaps, um, and, and I mean that simply aesthetically, it's always a pleasure to visit Manchester. Um, Morris yes. lays a long... A long list, a long list, a long conservative list. Um, let's... <laughs> Let's start, with, let's start with the debt. Well, most of the debt was due to Brown having actually saved us from the very edge of absolute catastrophe. Uh, if you are not a Keynesian, you will not agree with anything that he did. If you are on the whole, you will think that it was right and that it was money well spent. 
you will think there's, if you want to use the homely analogies uh, that George Osborne is so fond of, what we maxed out our credit card and all that, as if you were running the national economy, which is Mrs. Thatcher's trick from her handbag, which is the same analogy he uses, I would simply reply to you, well, you know, anybody who's got a, a, a mortgage Money well invested, which it was, because it did save the economy. It was the best thing Brown did, and it's the one thing that he'll go down in history for having done the right thing for, that was really important. I would use another analogy, homely and probably equally inaccurate, but it'll do. Uh, what if you go to a family, one of these famous maxed out fam credit card families, and say, good God, you've got a debt of 250 or 300,000 pounds on your mortgage. You must pay it back within four years immediately. Never mind if you all go bust and you're all out on the street. You must pay it back at once. Nonsense. If it's a low interest rate and it's perfectly manageable and paying it back is planned over the 25 years of your mortgage, that's perfectly reasonable. The, um, the fact that you know, we are on the edge of bankruptcy, which is what Osborne said when he came to, came to power, was just not true. And what's more, the Treasury Select Committee said so the other day, including Andrew Tirrey, who was, after all, a Conservative. So there is plenty of doubt uh, about your analysis of, you know, Labour left this, this grotesque debt, and as if there weren't, you know, as if somehow Labour was responsible for the global crisis, and for the debts in everybody else's countries, too. Um, reform, public service reform, I never quite know what, what, what is meant when people say, there was, wasn't enough reform, and they say it about, about uh, public services and about welfare and everything else in a sort of very general way, as if somehow reform was meant to mean, must mean, privatisation. And I presume that's what you mean. There wasn't privatised enough. I mean, you can hardly accuse Blair of not having reformed the National Health Service enough. He reformed it about, with about three really major upheavals, root and branch. Uh, enormous change, <clears throat> whether it was the creation of primary care groups, which changed to primary care trusts, which then got reorganised again uh, with foundation hospitals. There was uh, endless reorganisation. Uh, you can call it reform if you like. The results were good. The health service results, you couldn't say, were, I mean, I'm astonished. I've covered the health service. It's been my, one of my main specialisms the last 30 years. I never thought you could do away with waiting lists. I thought they were the rationing mechanism. Labour has proved this time that it's not so. Of course, they're now going to rise again. Satisfaction with the health service has risen enormously. If you look at the Mori opinion poll ratings of what people had, as a result, of course, it sunk as a worry. People are no longer sort of mention it in their, that such as gratitude of voters, no longer mention it in the issues that interest them. Um, so I think that, you know, whatever you mean by reform, if you look at something like the health service, you look at education, it has improved. Uh, not enough. There's much more to be done. But whether you can expect, within, you know, within a, a reasonably short time, for <clears throat> absolutely everything to be solved, I don't know. Um, I think I'll, I'll leave it. As for welfare dependency, well, it's a million people less uh, unemployed and on welfare until the until the recession and unemployment began. Then didn't seem to me to be a total failure. Tax credits added to the bill, but they were mostly paid to people in work and as a method of getting people into work, were very successful and very redistributive. And if we hadn't had tax credits, as the work of John Hills shows, what would have happened if we kept to the Conservatives' wealth tax and welfare system? Inequality would have been hugely greater, together combined with uh, the minimum wage. 
wonder if I can I'll just br- briefly make an analytical and a philosophical point to Morris. One is, I think, in writing the book, we became convinced that a lot of what besets the media, stories about spin and personality, don't actually have, and this is probably as true of the present government as the Labour government, don't actually have a great deal of effect or importance on the delivery of policy, both policy and its implementation. Government has a robustness, a sinuousness, which actually means that a lot of this sort of spin phenomenon is, is pretty unimportant. And I think one needs to sort of understand that a lot of, the, as I say, the fixation of the metropolitan media doesn't actually tell you a great deal about what government does. And if I may, just briefly, and it's far be it for me to counsel you in conservatism, but there is a distinguished conservative who was a, a professor here at the LSE um, uh, who basically said to us, the state, you can rest a lot more confidence in the capacity of the state to resist these transient phenomena who are ministers and politicians. When you talked about the corrosion of public life, I think that really is going uh, very, very far beyond uh, what the evidence would support. The evidence suggests that the state, which grew under Labour, does, again, have a great capacity to sort of do its own thing. Now, again, as a Conservative, you might be worried about that, and about the inertia of bureaucracy and so on, but I think the idea that it was all subverted by Alistair Campbell, I think, is to sort of misjudge the capacities, uh, the rich capacities of governments to, for, in a better or worse sense, survive um, the temporary presence of ministers uh, above them. And, of course, I'm talking about Oakeshott in his counselling us to be slightly more relaxed about uh, understanding of the power of ministers. A fair amount of skullduggery in every government. I'd say burning, Bernard Ingham, Ingham's hands were not exactly clean in terms of filthy briefings against other ministers. Uh, I would say that Andy Coulson, who is um, Murdoch's representative in this government, has quite a, a lot, lot to answer for. And you know, why else is he there where he is? Okay, let's have another round of questions. Okay, we've got uh, one just here, one at the back. And um, we'll try and keep it near to where the mics are. Another one there at the back in the top left. And we'll get over to this side of the room uh, in, in the next round. Could I remind uh, everybody, this is not the States General of pre-revolutionary France. So if we all sat to think about all the things that have annoyed us since 1997, it would be a very long list. So please ask um, quite concise and contained questions. Thanks. Sam Gross, uh, City of London School. Um, you skirted over party finance a little, you, you said a little, but um, while you said that Labour didn't really go far enough to change the system, I'd rather say that Labour was sort of indicted into the corruption of it, the cash for honour scandal. You know, it's reflective of a deep problem. And while the other parties were also e- equally guilty of uh, you know, issues with corruption really there, um, it was on Labour's watch and they could have changed it and they didn't. Um, uh, Fabrizio Scolini, LSC student here. Uh, I was wondering a bit uh, about uh, freedom of information or access to information laws that Labour actually enacted and seems to be very core to the values of the Labour Party. And then actually I remember to read uh, part of Blair's, Blair's memoirs about you know, regretting actually passing this law and actually you know, changing his mind completely about it. And I was wondering if that reflects something of a change in the core values of the leadership during this time since they actually got into power until they left power. You know, it seems like a move from you know, a very left open agenda towards 
a sort of conservatism and, and you know, secrecy agenda and at the end of the day. So I was wondering if you could reflect on the approval of that law and actually about you know, the level of secrecy in Labour's government. Um, can you just uh, clarify which law we're talking uh, The Freedom of Information Freedom law. Freedom of Information. Yeah, the Act, Freedom of Information Act. Right, okay, thanks. Proper name. And third question up there. Um, hi, um, Jonathan Daniels. I'm a project manager. I work within the transport sector. And um, I don't know, I thought it was a bit criminal that you didn't really mention the transport sector. I'm just wondering to what extent would you say that the investment in the transport infrastructure has reaped tangible benefits in, the, uh, in this period? To what extent the it's... Has the investment in the inf transport infrastructure actually reaped tangible benefits for the UK? Mm. Okay, thanks very much. Mm. Well, I'll, I'll take the Freedom of Information one first. Uh, I wasn't quite clear if you were saying it was a good thing or it hadn't gone far enough. Equally, I mean, what's your view on that? Yeah. Mainly about, you know, the check, oh, sorry. Mainly about how it seems that Mr. Blair changed his mind about, you know, yeah. being a good singer so later on. He said yes. Yeah. Well, I can see why, and I have some sympathy with him about it. I mean, I think the Freedom of Information Act was absolutely necessary. Um, on the other hand, I have been distressed at lots of the ways in which it's been used. Um, it has been used in a very lazy way by malevolent journalists to simply send out, and indeed by the opposition, particularly, you know, Eric Pickles was doing this in the run-up to the election, to simply send out a huge spray of freedom of information, fishing expeditions, to find out little things about who paid for whose sandwich, um, not for the big and important things. It's been used as a sort of uh, a way of targeting individuals in the public sector. I wish the Freedom of Information Act applied equally to, say, public companies in which shareholders should be able to know these things. It seems to me that it has rather maliciously focused all attention on really peccadilloes within the public sector. Uh, in what is essentially a pretty clean and uncorrupt public sector in this country, uh, whether it's civil servants or whoever it is, and they're pretty minor expenses, leave the MPs' expenses one to one side because that's a separate issue. Um, and this, you know, the Institute of Journalism uh, is endlessly sending out FOIs, thinking of clever things to target the public sector without any consideration of the fact that whenever you walk, go into a train or a plane and you look at the first class, all of the people in there are from the private sector, all of the money that's being spent on those first class tickets comes from shareholders' money, which is most of our pension funds, um, and no questions ever get asked about that. There is never any uh, sort of fair comparability between sectors. And so I think it has ended up denigrating the public sector quite seriously. In, and so for that reason, I understand why Blair had his, his doubts about whether it went too far. Uh, transport. Um, Stephen Glaister, who maybe known some of you, former professor at, the, at Imperial, um, observed that in Tony Blair's farewell address to the Parliamentary Labour Party in 2007, 
he devoted less time and attention to transport than he did to Africa. Now, you can read that two ways, that Africa was important, but it was an indication of how little attention he personally uh, had paid uh, transport. Um, briefly, there'd been a big burst of enthusiasm. I mentioned John Prescott uh, when he was uh, um, when he later came to power, which wasn't realised. A great promise of extra investment, which was partially realised. Labour did spend uh, uh, on roads up to a point. It spent on rail up to a point. But weaving that together into anything like a coherent transport policy, with anything like sustainability built in is virtually impossible. Bits and pieces. Uh, buses clearly improved here in London, partly because of the decisions made by the former mayor. Uh, bus policy, which had gone to rack and ruin under the major government, was brought back into a bit, bit more a rational state, but it's still pretty ropey. Uh, transport cannot be said to have been one of Labour's uh, uh, identifiably brilliant areas at all. Um, part of funding. Part of funding. I think um, the research shows over very many years and very many governments the extraordinary, remarkable coincidence and synergy between people who give a lot of money to parties and people who end up in the House of Lords or with honours of one kind or another. Uh, I'm not at all clear that Labour was any worse than what meant for or what's coming after. You just watch these new 60 peers of, uh, of, of, of Camerons and see how many of them may be significant donors to the Tory party. I think the party funding system has stunk for a very long time. Uh, Lord Ashcroft money, or whether it's Lord Levy going around with his, with, 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 with his hat out, um, the whole business of democracy depending on handfuls of millionaires has been appalling and Labour surely could have done something about it. Tony Blair was so obsessed with not wanting to be dependent on the unions that he preferred to be dependent on plutocrats. Um, I think there is a great problem of Labour being dependent on the unions. I think Labour needs a very close relationship with them but this doesn't seem to me to be a healthy or good one or very productive to either of them. Uh, and if only there hadn't been uh, such a force of conservatism with the small C in the Labour Party against any reform of any kind, Jack Straw mainly, uh, obstructive to any kind of electoral reform, obstructive to party funding reform, the ridiculous idea that he had to get cross-party party funding was just a way of doing, cross-party agreement on party funding was just a way of not really doing anything about it at all. Uh, I think it's a, a small tragedy and... Um, I think it creates huge, huge cynicism about the whole process of, of politics, and we should have state funding of parties and a transparent system. Okay, thanks. Let's have another round. Um, Paul, um, there was a, a question. Somebody raised their hands. Yeah, you raised your hands uh, just now, and another one there, the chap with the glasses and tie. That's... <laughs> I'll get you next time. You can have two questions. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> Paul Kelly, Government Department. Nice simple question from the LSE. Was the third way a good idea? That's the kind of question I like. Um. Hi. Yep. Um, Jamie Hodge. Um, the lady at the back railed against Labour's liberal agenda. I actually want to stand up for that liberal agenda. I think that a huge amount was achieved with things like civil partnerships and Labour's um, issues on equality. And actually, if you look at polling of the modern public, the vast majority of the public seems to agree. Um, most of that, all of that was fought tooth and nail by the Conservative Party. And it's only the last few years where they're now on board. And so uh, I'd be interested, does anyone, do the panel think that the Conservative Party would be anywhere near the place they are today on, on issues like equality if it hadn't been for the Labour government? 
Richard Jeremy. And quickly, as a public servant, completely agree with Polly on FOI. If you want me to spend time on FOI, that's fine, but I can't spend that on delivery. I was just wondering if you could say something about the newly kind of fashionable happiness thing that David Cameron's talking about and whether that improved. Linked to that, can a progressive ever be happy? <laughs> <laughs> It doesn't do for authors to recommend uh, colleagues and rivals, but Steve Richards of The Independent has attempted um, what you might think is impossible, which is to actually take Gordon Brown's thinking over the period from the late 80s till now and uh, defend Brown. I mean, leave his personal foibles on one side and say, was there a degree of intellectual consistency? Did he try and deliver some kind of vision in office? Now, whether Steve succeeds or not, you would need to look to Gordon Brown for the sort of intellectual integument of the third way, which is basically uh, an alignment of labour to private markets and specifically to the financial sector because it was felt that in the late 80s, early 90s, Labour could go nowhere else but away from its old manufacturing connections to what appeared to be uh, the modernising and modern sector of the economy. We saw in 2007 just how wrong a bet that had been, but at least, argue Steve Richards, there was a degree of consistency uh, in Brown's approach. For the rest of the third way, Polly um, can say, if she likes, she, she, I remember she went to a summit which was held in a palazzo outside Florence, was it in the autumn of 97? Um, Bill Clinton was still in the White House, the then president of Brazil was sort of on the left, but not so far left as successor Lula and um, there were a smattering of Schroeder just Jospin just it was a, mo a social democratic moment when by coincidence not because of being any sweeping move because a lot of them were swept away again there just happened to be uh, a, a lot of social democratic leaders in in in, in, part, in, in charge of big countries and the third way was meant to be exemplified and uh, it yeah, it had no content. It had no content here, as it turned out, it had no content uh, anywhere else. So, as a slogan, I think the answer is... Uh, it was an election-winning device and very successful. It was a way of trying to get rid of your past. If you had an old Labour past that you thought was dead duck and you wanted to get rid of the bad memories of 1979, it was a brilliant device. The trouble was it was not a device for governing. It was not a sense of any, of a, with any direction, and they never really lost it. The, what, they, what they built up from 1994 onwards, what they created then as a, as a, as a brilliant election-winning machine, guided them all the way through, and they never rethought themselves from a 1994 defensive state of mind. They, they had golden years. They had 10 years of unimaginable money in the Treasury and uh, power in the, in, in the Parliament. What might they have done with that? And I think it was that third way triangulating frame of mind that said, you know, we must never move in any direction. We must never be seen to be out front. We must never lead. We must never be the progressives. We feel we are and in a sense of kind of atrophy within them as a result of that. And that's part of their tragedy. Happiness. Oh, happiness. Happiness. <laughs> I wrote about happiness today. Um, <laughs> It's not just Cameron. I mean, this is actually something the ONS has, has uh, been working at uh, since, since last year, and Richard Layard has actually got a contract to work with them on, 
on how to do this. And it's something that um, Sarkozy is doing and a, a number of countries are doing. Because it's not very satisfactory to measure GDP, particularly as it's always GDP per capita and it doesn't tell you how it's shared. So you can say a country's growth is going terrifically, but actually it's all gone up to the top 2%. It's not going to do much for happiness overall. Um, Labour became very frustrated with uh, the evidence that showed that people's view about how they thought things were going was rather dark. Uh, I think, you know, the health service or education all going to hell in a handcart. But when asked, but how do you experience it yourself? How's your local school, your local hospital, your local GP? How are the police doing locally? It was very positive. And Murray, who followed those things all the way through, uh, found increasingly this dissonance between a sort of Daily Mail carapace of gloom and doom about everything, but actual experience getting better and better. So trying to get it at happiness and experience and what people actually feel seems to me quite important for all governments. And, and we should have something better than, than purely um, <coughs> more money pouring into the country, but you don't even know whose pockets it's going into. So I, I, I welcome it. I think it'll be trouble for this government. I find it very hard to see how any, almost any of their policies will make any other than perhaps the top 1.5% very happy. <laughs> okay, uh, another round. We have our two... two oh, the Liberal uh, Agenda, I agree. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, so, um, the questioner on his feet here. Um, one here and one there. Um, then we'll have and think another round after that. We'll probably have to um, wind it up. Okay, go ahead. Good evening, uh, Brian Hanks, an LSE alumnus. I can tell you roughly when it was because one of my lecturers was Ralph Miliband. <laughs> um, seems to me that most of the issues raised, which are already relevant, can be subsumed. And the one over on... the microphone, because I can't yeah. hear you. I'm sorry. Uh, most of the issues raised can be subsumed under the one overarching heading. And Blair did remark at one time, and maybe remarked several times, about this inability to get things done, which relates to this issue of public service reform. I agree with one of the speakers, I'm not quite clear what it means. Although when I asked uh, Andrew Rawnsley earlier this year at the Hay Festival, what was the thing Labour didn't do that should, it should have done, that was his answer, public service reform. And that presumably was something that came out of his long discussions with the Labour Party, uh, the government. But the overarching issue is threefold. One, far too much legislation. Two, ill-thought-out legislation. And three, inability to implement it properly. And probably the single biggest problem this country suffers from, not just in government, but in every other aspect of life, is the inability to manage large, complex projects. And until that's dealt with, we'll get nowhere. Okay, thanks. Um, next question over there. So um, you've, I'm sorry, Michael Brock. And uh, you've done this four times now, is it four books, I think? Well, we did two, we did, we, 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 monitored, we audited the first term and the second term, and now we've done the whole caboodle. The whole thing, the whole caboodle, as we say in the States. Um, I suppose also, and you've, you've done it from a viewpoint, at least overarchingly sympathetic uh, to the cause, if you would, uh, 
and at least the way that you've explained it here, as I've not read the books, has been uh, the advance of the progressive cause in these ways and the not so ad well advanced uh, progressive cause in these other ways and some lost opportunities also. Um, now, given the change in government, um, is it your intent, and I, I actually hope that it is, not having read your books, but I hope to read at least one, in fact, now having been here, will you uh, undertake a similar project uh, with the current government? Okay, thanks. Um, third questioner over here, next to the aisle. Thank you. Um, Jimmy Adefiranyi. Um, the four leading members of this government represent constituencies which are the, mo 30, the 30 most um, um, prestigious constituency in the UK. In other words, where they are more affable than people in the inner city areas. But at the same time, the government keeps saying we are all in it together. And they seem to be succeeding in doing that because they are saying they're putting all these measures in place because of the deficit left behind by the Labour administration. How far do you go with this assertion? And how, does that, how far does that um, compare to other European countries who, who are in similar financial situation? Thank you very much. Why don't you, as I've already talked about the deficit, why don't you do the deficit one first? Well, first of all, it's wrong to say that the state is incapable of managing large projects. The United Kingdom Armed Forces in Afghanistan wouldn't be functioning if that were the case. The fact is benefits are delivered pretty regularly and successfully. Taxes are collected pretty regularly and successfully by large organisations. Clearly, public management is problematic. And one has to recognise that, knowing that in many ways running private companies is a lot easier. The logistics of running, for example, Tesco, are actually in many ways, they're grand in scale, but in terms of the complexity of the operation, a lot less than most big functions of the state, which are made complex by the fact that they're organised in a political environment, and must be, because that's the nature uh, of the beast uh, in a democracy. And I think to, to go from there to generic criticism of the capacity of government is wrong, but one does have to accept clearly, and there's plenty of evidence from the National Audit Office and so on and so forth, that government could be much more effective uh, and efficient. But again, there is no logical line which says bringing the private sector in, either in the form of um, members of governing boards or in terms of contracting out, will in and of itself make the delivery of public services more, more effective. Okay. Well, <laughs> go, go, carry. Um, what was the third question? Deficit. Uh, are we all in this together? But Why? also, the deficit left by Labour was. Uh, to what extent is Labour to blame for that? And, and, and how does it compare with other countries? That was your main point, yeah. Well, self-evidently, the United Kingdom is not in the same position as the Southern European countries or uh, the Republic of Ireland. Um, all countries with debt, however, are to some extent in the hand of bondholders whose attitudes appear to be governed by a whole series of completely 
subjective often and unpredictable uh, sways of opinion. So it, we, you, you can say at no particular point at any given level of national debt will or will not occasion uh, action by uh, bondholders if they are foreign. Um, it is the case that the bulk of British debt is uh, held by domestic and one sometimes exaggerates the effect of the ratings agencies and others because uh, in terms of the proportion of debt that they held. Self-evidently, coping with the recession pushed up the UK deficit, as it had done in previous recessions. You can blame Labour for that if you like, but you would have as a counterfactual to say what would have happened if Labour hadn't spent uh, to uh, try and rectify uh, the reduction in demand occasion during the recession. And if you accept that the government had to act, whether you're a Keynesian or not, uh, a deficit uh, would have uh, increased in size. Um, what one does with it is an empirical matter, and there is a large body of opinion, and it isn't all by any means liberal left opinion, that says the timing over which one does deal with the UK deficit is a critical matter because of the conjunctural weakness of the private economy. Um, the present government, with its Liberal Democrat allies, has chosen to try and reduce the deficit very, very quickly. Um, jeopardising, in some people's eyes, the capacity of the UK economy to re-equilibrate. It made assertions about the capacity of private companies to supply, to increase employment, assertions which are based upon um, not a great deal of uh, reliable evidence. So it's taking a big risk. People have talked about a massive experiment. Um, there are scenarios where the deficit is wound down on a much more gradual basis, uh, clearly occasioning reductions in public expenditure. Uh, but by nothing, at nothing like the rate that the present government is doing. And you might gather that's broadly our view. Uh, let's take up your reform question, because this bugs me a lot. There is a, a, a sort of habit uh, amongst commentators, particularly commentators of all sorts, saying, well, of course, Labour failed to do reform. And if you ask them what reform is mostly, they are clueless about the nature of the uh, particular services that are being mentioned, they just think reform is a good thing. It's become a sort of label. Um, some people, of course, may mean privatisation. I mean, what you couldn't accuse Labour of had is not having constantly reorganised. I think that it, reform was the disease, and I think it's going to be the disease of this government. If you actually want to make, for instance, the health service better, yet again, rearranging all of the debt chairs, yet again rearranging all of the structures and getting rid of all of the managers uh, isn't the way to do it and it's the way it's always been done. Actually the NHS has been subjected to this roughly every five years since 1948. It's not true that it's you know, this great monolith that's never been touched. That's the myth that every government likes to have and then it sets about it with a knife and fork. Um, Actually, I think the kind of reform that you need is that you look at the child sitting in the desk and say, what is it? What is the process by which learning gets into that child's head? What is the process by which a patient arrives at a GP's clinic and gets good treatment and arrives in a hospital and is kindly and well treated? You start from the bottom up and you work out from people's experiences and what actually is. It's much more fun to theorise and intellectualise and sit up there in a ministry and say, I'm going to get out a big new blueprint and draw new organograms of who's going to do what and how many people are going to move their jobs, how many times. We have somebody in the book who's a, a very good doctor who's a, uh, a public health director in the South West. 
He has changed his job something like seven times within the last uh, 15 years without changing his job at all. He simply had to reapply for it under a new blast, brass plate due to the... Um, due to the reorganizations or the reforms that successive governments keep doing, they forget what it does. You lose a year of good capacity. And all public servants know this. And if they bother to talk to the health service managers and people who actually run things, people who make schools work and other things work, how much time they spend dealing with the intellectual foibles of the people at the top who have wonderful new ideas, if that's what reform is, I'm a it. Okay, thanks very much. That's another book. <laughs> I'm not sure if we can face it. We've been discussing it. But luckily it's a long while to the next election. We can recover because it's, you know, it's incredibly difficult to go through everything that a government does because they do so much. As you were, somebody was talking about the, the madness, or you were talking about the madness of hyperactivity. They do so much. A lot of it badly, a lot of it then gets forgotten by the next minister six months later. But collecting it all up and trying to put it into some digestible form or make sense of it um, is a painful process. But maybe we will, maybe we're not sure yet. Okay, uh, time is creeping up on us. We've got time for one more question, and I'm going to depart from my randomised sampling technique. The question has to come from a current LSE undergraduate. Go ahead. Wait for the mic. I was wondering what both of you thought about Blair's policies of liberal interventionism, not just in relation to Iraq, but, but as a whole, because I think Iraq often overshadows like Kosovo and Sierra Leone and stuff like that. Okay, thanks. Well, I started by being very impressed. I mean, Sierra Leone was successful. It worked. A small, a small intervention made a big difference at the right time with a small force. Uh, and, uh, and, 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 and we got out of there and it was fine. Um, it seemed to me, as he spelt it out in the early days, a sort of noble endeavour. Do what you can, where you can, if you see the opportunity to intervene and do good. Um, I think having seen, you know, I was in favour of Afghanistan, and having seen how unbelievably intractable it has turned out to be, how uncertain it is, that we have done good or will have done good or we will have left the country significantly better than, than we found it. I now, uh, I think, have changed my mind and think that um, intervention is almost always going to be the worst option. Uh, and I've retreated, I think, you know, one has to learn from experience. And I think the experience of both uh, Iraq and Afghanistan has been so painful that I can't see a government hurrying to do that again. Um, I hope not. Although I think one is worth adding that that may also be an example of the danger or the brilliance of intellectuals in politics. I, I'm not sure that had Tony Blair confronted empirically a series of specific foreign policy issues, including Syria, without the assistance of Sir Lawrence Friedman, who wrote the famous speech that Blair made in Chicago, um, in which that phrase liberal interventionism was sort of coined, it would ever have acquired anything like the sort of force of a, a, a doctrine. 
he, he might have responded to Iraq in the way he did, but it would have been a singleton of an event. And I think one has to be, uh, be conscious of how, just as with Mrs. Thatcher, Thatcherism was an invention of intellectuals rather than of the lady herself, so liberal interventionism was, was invented for Blair and it suited his purposes to apply that veneer to a series of quite specific foreign policy events. And I would throw in Kosovo too. I mean, I thought Kosovo was the right thing to do. Um, and it was very difficult not to intervene there. You know, this was Europe. Um, I guess one just has to be pragmatic about each particular case and not try to, um, not try to have an ism, if you can help it. <laughs> okay, um, I'd just like to conclude by reminding you that Polly and David will sign copies of the books, as long as you buy them, of course, uh, <laughs> just outside uh, the entrance there. And um, thanks very much to Polly and David for a very enlightening...